Elias ben Yehuda uh, is a hero of uh, the, the revival of Hebrew and a hero of Zionism, and of course was a villain to those who thought that the restoration of mundane Hebrew uh, was a, a terrible disgrace of religion, of God, and he would, had as many enemies in his lifetime, and even in, after his lifetime, his grave would be desecrated multiple times. Uh, but what makes Eliezer ben Yehuda interesting is that Unlike most other characters we've discussed thus far, whose personal lives really weren't all that interesting uh, and had little or nothing to do with their public careers, in the case of Eliezer ben Yehuda, his private life was his public career, in significant part. So let us examine his life. So he was born in 1858 in Luzki in Lithuania. His father was Yehuda Leib Perlman, mother Fega Perlman, and he was uh, the youngest child in the family. Older siblings were significantly older. And he, according to legend, and there are a lot of legends surrounding the Ben Yehuda family, of which we'll have to try to figure out what's historical and what's not, and we'll never really figure it out entirely. His mother had a dream before uh, he was born that the child would grow up to be a great man. And she thought he'd be a great rabbi in Israel, because to... The world of Fega Perlman in the 1850s in Lithuania, what, what did it mean to become a great Jew? To become a great rabbinic leader. Uh, she couldn't fathom what would happen 40 years later, 50 years later, that his renown would be for something other than the rabbinic profession. Um, as a young boy, Eliezer learns with his father. And his father dies when Eliezer is five. He has... Uh, coughing spells in which the last one he coughed up blood and the blood went on to the chumash that they were studying and the famous last words of his father were clean up the Torah clean up the chumash from the blood make it readable and the make it readable part stu- stuck with him that he would have to make Hebrew readable again um, after his father died the family went to live with a rich uncle this was often the case the man's name was David Wolfson he was uh, an agent of the local uh, nobleman, and the uncle actually had a, a desire to marry his niece, uh, Ben Yehuda's mother, but it never came to pass, and I don't think he ever actually said anything to her, but there was, uh, there was a relationship that was sort of never consummated there. And up until Bar Mitzvah, he lived with this, with this uh, uncle, and then he was sent off to the yeshiva in Pollock to study. At some point in his early life, his right index finger was amputated. Yeshomrim, there are those who say, and this is the, the legendary part, that he had a, an infection and his mother wisely took him to the doctor and he quickly realized you have to amputate the finger lest the boy suffer a worse fate, lest he die. The other version of the story is that he cut off his finger to escape the draft, as was somewhat common in Eastern Europe at the time, the Pale of Settlement. So we don't know, but there's the unpleasant version and there's the sickness version. Okay. He lived in the Pale of Settlement. He lived in Lithuania. He, in, in, in the Tsarist Empire. Sa- same political fate. So, after going to the yeshiva, thinking he was going to study Talmud, like a good yeshiva boy, and being supported by an uncle who was kind of primitive and was totally unlettered, but yet knew that the, the right thing for a boy to do is to study Torah in the yeshiva, 
he ends up studying with Rabbi Joseph Blocker. Rabbi Blocker, not a famous man by, of any stretch, you, know, you, you would never have heard of him other than his relationship with Ben Yehuda, had a small yeshiva in town and there was a larger yeshiva in town. And you, Ben Yehuda went to the, the small yeshiva for more personal attention. And he got personal attention. In addition to his Torah studies, Rabbi Blocker gave him Hebrew literature, which you had to do surreptitiously, either at night or, if it was in broad daylight, you had to cover, conceal it within the large volumes of the Talmud. And so Eliezer ben Yehud remembered reading Robinson Crusoe in Hebrew and thinking, wow, this is amazing, secular literature in Hebrew. And he developed a love for the Hebrew language. But, at some point, his uncle finds out that he's, uh, his nephew is a quasi-masculine, and he catches him in the act, sends the kid packing, get out of here, you're out of my home. So, young Eliezer, 13, 14 years old, doesn't know what to do with himself, he goes up to Globokutsha, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, and he goes to the yeshiva there, thinking that he was going to prove his family wrong, that he would, yes, he would study in the yeshiva and become a great scholar, of the traditional variety, not yet fully understanding that he was on the path of the Haskalah. He didn't even know what was happening to him. And so he w- finds his way into the home of Solomon Jonas, who was a wealthy man, a brewer, a distiller, who, although he made his living selling booze to the Gentiles, which is not exactly a very intellectual enterprise, uh, he himself was quite learned, a maskil, a man who grew up in the traditional environment, but had moved away slightly from religious observance and had a, r- a library full of books. And so he met young Eliezer ben Yehuda in the shul and took him home. In the home, he would uh, take Eliezer under his wings and teach him the various languages and secular studies and prepare him for eventually for uh, an, an academic education. But who is going to be his tutor? Jonas's daughter, Devorah. And of course, what happens? Eliezer and Devorah fall in love. But it was not meant to be just yet. So for about a year or two, he lives with the Jonas family, and then he studies for his exams uh, to enter into a public high school, and he goes to the high school in Dvinsk. Jews were allowed into the public high school? Yes, there were quotas, and you had to pass a test, and uh, Jews um, far out uh, performed the others, and so their percentage in the more advanced Russian schools was way above their percentage of the population, uh, but that's also because the local uh, Gentile serfs and uh, underclass wasn't interested in advancing themselves intellectually for the most part, at least not in the 1870s. Okay, so before going to Dvinsk, Eliezer goes home to Luzki to say hello and goodbye to his mother and even to his uncle and to tell them that uh, he wants to become a doctor wants to become a doctor. While he was in Dvinsk, he becomes a Russian nihilist. And he's sort of divorcing himself from all things Jewish, believing that the problems of the Russian people are much more significant than the problems of uh, the parochial interests of the Jews. That if all the world's problems were solved, the Jews would take care of themselves too. So he was a man of the world at this point. He also abandons religious observance. 
He had been up to that time a yeshiva boy, fully shomer mitzvot in every sense of the word. He breaks that off completely at this time. How old is he? Uh, he's probably 15, 16, 17. Yeah, young. Well, I, I don't think that it happened all in one shot, but I think that over the years that he was in Dvinsk, he went in uh, a traditional Jew with ideas about Haskalah and becoming a physician and left uh, without much of his traditional baggage still intact. But the one thing he did decide to keep was the Hebrew language. He still loved the Hebrew language. And although he realized that the literature being produced by the, the Hebrew writers of his day was far inferior to that of the Russian writers, he still thought one day maybe Hebrew will make a resurgence. He's ready to leave Dvinsk at the age of 20 and move on in life and go to, become a phys- to, learn to, go, to go to medical school in France. But before he goes to France he has an epiphany. And he realizes that, no, he's still a Jew. And he has to cast his lot with the Jews. He'll go and become a physician and be a public intellectual on behalf of his people. Not on behalf of Russia or the world, but on behalf of the Jews. So he hasn't br- come back to religious observance, but he still has more than just a pint of He wants to be a, a, an important Jewish figure. Secular Jew. Yes. But he has one more thing he needs to do. He needs to go back to the Jonas family home and break things off with Devorah. Because when he left her to go to Dvinsk to high school, she said, don't forget me. And he said, I won't forget you. Which is another code word for we'll get married one day. But that was when he didn't have these plans of going off to become a doctor, to go to Western Europe, uh, when he was just a simple boy. And so he wants to break things off that she should marry someone else and forget about him and move on in life. But she refuses. She's very persistent. And says, no, no, I'll wait for you to finish medical school. I'll wait right here. I'll read my books. You'll read your books. And one day we'll get back together. Jonas didn't want to break it off. Jonas was very interested in breaking it off. As much as he liked Ben Yehuda personally, he didn't want to interfere with his daughter's uh, prospects in life. Okay. So he enrolls in the Sorbonne in 1878. And while there... He's interested in keeping up uh, with the goings-on in Eastern Europe, and for that matter, advancing himself intellectually, not just in the field of medicine. So he goes to the library, the public library, and he finds there a Polish nobleman, or uh, someone who was of of Polish noble lineage, who was a Russian journalist by the name of Chachnikov. And Chachnikov encouraged Eliezer ben Yehuda to write political uh, tracts, to get involved as a, as, a, as, a, as a writer of political propaganda. And he does. So he writes the, the Burning Question, famous essay of Ben Yehuda, The Burning Question, in Hebrew. And he sends it to the publication Hamagid, which rejects it. And he's very dejected by having been rejected. And so Chachnikov says, but there must be some other publications you could send it to. So he sends it to Hashachar, the Dawn, which was run by Peret Smolenskin out of Vienna. And Smolenskin decides, okay, fine, I'll publish it, but I completely disagree. And Smolenskin at that time was not a, was not a, a Zionist. Now the term Zionism doesn't yet uh, get coined until Nathan Birnbaum coins it in 1890. But the concepts of a Jewish national revival are already around starting from the, uh, the early 1880s, from 1881. 
And Smolenskin, although he's a cult, something of a cultural Zionist, so to speak, or a cultural nationalist, he's not yet a convinced Zionist. And he says, I'll publish Ben Yehuda's piece, but I disagree with him. Eventually, Ben Yehuda would get Smolenskin to turn around and become a full-fledged Zionist. But, for all the glory of having been a published author, Ben Yehuda had a problem. He developed tuberculosis, and like his father, was coughing up blood. And the doctors gave him six months to live. So he was told, after having been checked out by better doctors, uh, that he should go to a warm climate for treatment. And he was sent to Algiers in North Africa for treatment. That's one. While he was in North Africa, he discovered something very important. Sephardim. (laughs) And more important than the Sephardim themselves was their dialect of Hebrew. He heard... Sephardic pronunciation of Hebrew for the first time and was amazed at how much better it sounds than Ashkenazis. And so his buddy Chachnikov came to visit him in Algiers, the Goy, in the hospital. And he, and he said, listen, I'm going to sp- say a line for you. He said it in Ashkenazic Hebrew. And then he asked his Sephardic uh, co-patient in the next bed to say Shema Yisrael in his version of Hebrew. And he asked Chachnikov, Nu, which one is better? And don't be afraid to offend me. Give me the honest truth. He said, well, the honest truth is the Sephardic sounds a lot better. And from that moment he decided, so be it. Sephardic is the way to go in the Hebrew. And that, was, that, that episode, as you know, minor as it might sound in the grand scheme of things, played an important role in ultimately having modern-day Hebrew be the Sephardic pronunciation, not the Ashkenazi. This is a true story. This is a true story. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry, the girlfriend will will play a major role in all this. Okay. So, in in 1881, in 1881, uh, Ben Yehuda goes back to Paris. But he's not going to be able to finish his medical studies. At best, he'll go to a teacher's seminary and become a teacher. And... He then makes his way to Vienna to discuss things with Smolenskin, who is the publisher of Hashaka, the Don, on his way to Eretz Yisrael. He's going to go to Israel. Meaning if he has a limited time to live, if he's a diseased man who doesn't have much to hope for in life, let him at least live his waning years in the Holy Land, uh, doing whatever he can uh, as a man of, of letters, of language, to uh, advance the cause of Hebrew. But he has something else he needs to do. For the second time, he needs to break things off with Devora. So he writes a letter to her father saying, I'm a sick man, I don't know how much time I have left to live, I, I'm not going to be a doctor, I, don't, I can't support a family, I'm a lost cause, don't, get your, don't let your daughter get involved with me, tell her it's all over. And Mr. Jonas tells this to Devora, but she resists, she refuses to accept her fate. And despite not having a valid passport, she runs across the border and meets him in Vienna, knowing that, knowing that he was going to be there for the next week. So she quickly made it for her way from Moscow all the way to Vienna in just a few days. And knocks on his door and says, hello, I'm here. He wasn't expecting that, Elias. So they make a deal. They'll get married on one condition. They only speak Hebrew. Problem, Devorah doesn't speak any Hebrew. <laughs> She'll learn. Okay. Now, the marriage, the marriage was officiated in Cairo. They took a boat from Europe 
off to Egypt, and then they would take a train. Uh, um, well, actually, they would take another boat to to to, to Jaffa. To Jaffa, they get married in Cairo. Well, in those years, you could travel without a lot of money. And when they got to Israel, the first thing that came to Eliezer ben Yehuda's mind was that there's a problem here. This is supposed to be a Jewish country, but our brethren Esav and Yishmael have already taken over. He sees it's an Arab country. The, the porters, the, the, the porters and, the, and, the, and the sailors at Jaffa are all Arab. So what hope is there for a, a Jewish revival if there already is a population here? Um, they go to Jerusalem. And Eliezer does something very dangerous. He gives up his Russian passport and becomes an Ottoman citizen, a resident of Jerusalem. He does this as an ideological matter, that he is now cutting ties with his past and is a man of Eretz Yisrael, which means he has to become an Ottoman citizen because the Ottomans are the sovereigns uh, in the Holy Land. But the danger involved is that you no longer have the protection of a European power. The Ottoman Empire was the, the, the dying man of Europe. It's not long for this earth. And it's a very corrupt place. They arrest people. You have to bribe them, which which will happen to Eliezer ben Yehuda on multiple occasions. Uh, And people who had a foreign passport, who were born abroad, at least had the advantage in Jerusalem of the many consulates that existed to protect their expatriates. So he gives up his citizenship and uh, is on his own now. Well, what's he going to do in Jerusalem? So he comes across Israel Dov Rumkin who is a Chabad Chassid and the publisher of Chavatzelet, the Lily, and welcomes Eliezer ben Yehuda and gives him a job. Something very important happens to Eliezer and Devorah. They become religious again. Why? (laughs) 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 All right. So, that is one of the greatest interjections in the history of this class. All right. No, no, what happened was Eliezer ben Yehuda does not have a profound theological turnaround. But what he realizes is that if he wants a national revival of Jewry and the revival of the land and language, he cannot uh, create problems of religious strife. And that it's his responsibility to be a good example, to preserve the traditions of yesteryear in order to... Uh, have as many of the Jews of Jerusalem and Eretz Yisrael view his activities with favor. But later, his father-in-law would ask him, when his father-in-law came uh, also to Eretz Yisrael, does that mean everybody's got to be religious in your eyes? And he said, no, no, people can do whatever they want. The free thinkers don't have to be religious. But I, for myself and my family, had a special responsibility uh, for communal harmony to to observe the traditions. Okay, so... Um, he wears a fez hat. He, do, he dresses like a Sephardic Jew. He has a pronunciation of the Sephardic Jews. He'll have the uh, sartorial splendor of the Sephardic Jews. Uh, the Chavatzelet, the lily, attacks the Alliance Israelite Universelle, the French-Jewish uh, philanthropic organization, for discouraging Aliyah during the period of the pogroms. 1881... Eliezer ben Yehuda arrives in Eretz Yisrael. Well, so are a lot of other people. Well, not so many other people, but this is the first, the first Aliyah. But Eliezer did it for reasons of ideology and you know, personal circumstance, not because he was afraid of pogroms. He missed the pogroms, fortunately for him. And so the enemy are those in the philanthropic world of Chutzla Aretz who are hostile or antagonistic to this enterprise of Kibbutz Galiot and the, the, the resurrection of Jewish national life. 
He also befriends Michael Pinus, who is the head of the uh, Society in Memory of Moses Montefiore, and is a Misnagid leader. So he's a friend of a Chabadnik, and he's a friend of a Misnagid. And that's not an easy thing. He's also a friend of Nisim Bechar, who is the head of the Aliyan school. Now, the Alliance is, is so-called the enemy, because they're the non-Zionists. But Bechar, who is the head of the school, has an affinity for Hebrew, and he, teaches Elie- he hires Eliezer to teach Hebrew in Hebrew. Ivrit be'ivrit, which is a major step forward pedagogically. It's one thing to try to teach a language that doesn't really exist. It's quite another to teach a language that doesn't exist in a language that doesn't exist. <laughs> All right. Now, some of those students from the Aliant School of Jerusalem in the early 1880s went on to become the greatest of the Hebrew teachers of the, uh, the period of the Yishuv, of the later Turkish era and the Mandate era, including David Yellen, who was his first disciple. Um, they didn't have a language. They didn't have a, a dictionary Okay, so the dictionary will be written by Ben Yehuda later in his life and be published partly in his life and partly posthumously. Okay, so while he was teaching, he was relying upon basic Hebrew that always existed, especially in the Sephardic world. Uh, There were always people who could speak Hebrew, but they didn't do so as a first language. And it lacked, of course, all the modern words, but based upon biblical and rabbinic uh, predecessors, there was an... uh, an existing Hebrew in, in the 19th century. It just didn't have any people speaking it as their first language, not, at least not yet. Okay, so some of the religious Ashkenazim don't like the revival of Hebrew, and they, they test uh, Ben Yehuda. They test his frumkite. They think he's a, a, a phony, and uh, that he's just trying to put one over on them to produce a secular society. Explain what the frumkite has to do with Okay, so those who believed in uh, the restoration of Zion and all the messianic promises happening only in messianic times and not through human efforts also believed that Hebrew was a sacred language to be used only for sacred purposes, like the study of Torah and prayer, not for idle chatter, as they would call it. Devarim betelim, and certainly not for sichash al yom yom, day-to-day conversation. Um, So what did they do to test him? Sort of Offhandedly, someone gave him a cigarette on Shabbos to see if he would smoke it. And he didn't. And he didn't. Well, well <laughs> all right. So, he, he's trying his best to develop Hebrew in Yerushalayim, given all the various factions. He comes across the mailman from the Russian consulate. Uh, why does the Russian consulate have a mailman? The answer is, people sent mail from abroad to, to Eretz Yisrael, and there was no regular mail service. There was no doar. Therefore what? You had a consulate in Jerusalem. All the mail from that country would go to the consulate building. And the consulate had a bureaucrat who was the so-called mailman who would alert you, or you would go to him if you wanted to pick up any packages. And this fellow's name was Davidson. And... Who was this Davidson character? He was coming over to Ben Yehuda all too often to deliver packages and schmooze with him for hours on end, even though there wasn't really much business to conduct. So he asked him, what's going on here? Who are you really? And he said, I was a Cantonist. A Cantonist. What is a Cantonist? A Cantonist was a Jewish child from the Pale who was abducted into the service of the Tsar's army for a period of many, many decades, most of whom never came out alive or certainly didn't come out alive in Jewish. 
he somehow made it uh, out of the army after 20 years of service, made it to, to the Turkish Empire, made it to Jerusalem, and now works as a bureaucrat in the consulate's office. But he originally came from Goldingen, near the Prussian border. And his, his sister's name was Fega. And who was his sister? Eliezer's mother, Fega. This was Eliezer ben Yehuda's long-lost uncle, who no one had seen in 40 years. Now, lest you think that this is the only example of like a long-lost relative who reappears, you're in for more. There's, a, there's another, another one, or at least, at least one, or maybe two examples of that in, the, in this broader story. This is all true. Everything, everything I'm saying is true. If there's anything that's, that's apocryphal, I'll let you know that it's maybe true, maybe not true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, the next major event to happen is the arrival of Bilu in 1882. What is Bilu? Beit Yaakov Lechuven Elcha. Now, Beit Yaakov Lechuven Elcha, what's the rest of the Pasuk? Be'or Hashem. So they left out the Be'or Hashem part. It's just Beit Yaakov Lechuven Elcha. And these are the Zionist pioneers of 1882 who are coming in response to the pogroms. So they're coming from Russia. They arrive, and they have no clue what they're going to do. They go to Jerusalem, and they arrive at Ben Yehuda's doorstep. And what has happened to be? Erev Pesach. So he has them over for the Seder. So the Bilu people come to Ben Yehuda for the Seder. And he gives them advice and tells them, go to the settlements. Go to Rishon Tzion, go to Mikveh Yisrael, go to the, the handful of agricultural settlements that exist in, in, the, in the regions of the coastal plain. Now, they want to buy land. And in the end, ultimately they buy land near Jaffa. And Eliezer thinks that's a mistake. Why? Because Yerushalayim is Tzion. And there should be a buildup of the demographic in the vicinity of Tzion. And for the rest of his life, Eliezer would lament the fact that the coastal plain, the Shvela, would become heavily Jewish and eventually would become the backbone of the state of Israel, demographically and geographically. And that the, coastal, the, uh, the, the central highlands of the Sumerian and the Judean hills would remain thoroughly Arab. And to this day, remains thoroughly Arab, other than you know, post-1967 settlements. And so he was, was saddened by that. And, and you can make a strong argument that the decision of a handful of people 130 years ago did have an effect upon geopolitics for decades to come. In 1882, the Turkish government bans further Jewish immigration and uh, Jewish land purchases. This is a horrible thing. This would put an end to Zionism, if not for the fact that the law isn't always followed in the Turkish domain. Uh, It just means you have to do things illegally. Bribe and pay for land twice, once to the original owner and then once to the clerk who has to record it in the the office. Um, On the 15th of Av, on on the 9th of Av, these evil decrees are issued. On the 15th of Av, what happens? Mashiach is born. Who is Mashiach? The son of Eliezer and Devorah. Now, this is apocryphal. I don't think he was born on Tuba Av. I mean, maybe he was, but I think this is too much uh, legendary stuff. Uh, he was born in the summer of 1882. Whether it was Tuba Av, I couldn't tell you. What was his name? So, they wanted to name him Itamar. Why Itamar? I'm not sure. But the, the tradition was that when you move to, to Yerushalayim and you have a firstborn son, what do you name the son? Ben Sion. So they had to name him Ben Sion. So he becomes Ben Sion Ben Yehuda. They, got, they long got rid of Perlman. Eliezer Perlman became Eliezer Ben Yehuda. He took his father's name as his last name. So this is now Ben Sion Ben Yehuda. 
Later in life, he would change his name to Itamar, which is what the name that his parents wanted to give him, and he would also adopt the last name of Ben-Avi, the son of my father, to honor his father. And Avi is an acronym of Eliezer Ben-Yehuda. So Ben-Sion, Ben-Yehuda becomes Itamar Ben-Avi in honor of his father. But that's later in life. Um, what does Eliezer do for a living? So he's teaching in the Allianz school, but now he goes into... Uh, Publishing. He's working for the Chavatzelet, for Frumkin, but he wants to do his own thing. So in 1883, he borrows a, a, a license to publish a newspaper from Rabbi Hershenhorn, Rabbi Hershenson, uh, and the name of the, the paper was Hatzvi, the deer. And he takes over the paper. It's a weekly paper. His family is horribly poor, and he's sinking his resource, financial resources into his publishing efforts. His father-in-law was a reasonably wealthy man, but his father-in-law is back in Moscow, and his wife is too, is too uh, full of pride to admit to her parents by letter that we're desperately poor, so she sells whatever meager possessions she has to keep the family afloat. Ben Sion doesn't speak at first. He's two, doesn't speak. He's three, doesn't speak. He's four, still hasn't said a word yet. Now, what's going on here? The deal was, the child can only hear Hebrew. He cannot be exposed to any other language, which means he cannot socialize with other children. He's stuck in the house the whole time. And this was the tyrannical approach of the father. And the mother abided by it because she adored her husband. So people are telling him, hey, listen, your kid is going to grow up to be an imbecile. You have to expose him to other languages. Hebrew is not a real language. The kid's never going to say a word. And, and the, 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 the social criticism of the Ben Yehuda family, of, of, the, of the couple, was really wearing on him. Finally, at some point, Eliezer and Devorah get into a fight. And what happens? He's yelling at his wife, and the son stops and says, Lo Abba, lo. Finally, the kid speaks. So it took a fight between the parents to get the kid to say something. And from that point... Fo- All right, so this may be apocryphal, but, but the son seems to have remembered the story as it happened. And so it's not, it's, it's not implausible. It may be apocryphal, but I th- there's a chance that it may have happened. Sounds good, Sounds good for sure. Okay. Now, the Orthodox don't like the Ben Yehuda family, as I said. And one time, things got very, very dicey. The Ben Yehuda family had a dog. They adopted a dog. The kid wanted a dog. You know, listen, he had a rough childhood, he had no friends, at least he would have a dog. And he named the dog Mahir. Fast, quick. Except at one time, he stumbled uh, out of, the, out of, the, out of the, the courtyard where they were living and made his way towards Meisharim. And he was calling for his dog, Mahir, Mahir. And the, the Haredim thought that he was, he was saying Meir. And their Rebbe was Rebbe Meir. So he thought, they, they thought he, he, the boy was mocking the Hasidus. And so they, they killed the dog and they almost lynched the kid. They beat him within an inch of his life. Um... And that was uh, the problem that the family faced. Okay. The next child was Yemima, a girl. And she was followed by Avichail, a boy. Um, the kids weren't supposed to hear other languages. They weren't supposed to socialize with other kids. But ben Sion, for Ben Sion, it's finally time to go to school. So he went to the Alliance school, where Bechar was the principal and where the father, Eliezer had previously taught. 
But the problem is that the school wasn't committed to the study of Hebrew. It was still an Allianz school, which they meant that French. they spoke French primarily, and uh, the study was primarily of subjects unrelated to Judaism, and certainly not Hebrew. And so this bothered Eliezer, uh, and he wanted to homeschool the child, which would further exacerbate the situation the kid not have any friends. Um, at one point, they were evicted from their apartment for lack of paying, for not paying rent. They were very, very poor. And it, the eviction happened on Shabbos, on a rainy Friday night, to make things worse. So, they don't have too many friends. It's not a, not a good situation. And they had a Turkish landlord? They had a Jewish landlord. Jewish landlord. <laughs> now, why, why it happened, it's because Eliezer, in his newspaper, wrote an article, a nasty article about how landlords were overcharging rent. And it happened to be that his landlord was a nice person who allowed him to slide for a few months, but the, land, but the landlord took it as a, pub, as a personal offense, so kicked him out of the house. Okay. <laughs> Devorah has an idea. Eliezer's a bit eccentric. A bit eccentric, yes. Yeah. More than a bit. Now, Devorah comes up with an idea to make money. What do you do if you're a Jew in Eretz Yisrael, and you need cash, and you have a certain degree of fame? Where do you go? Chutzlaretz. And you go on a speaking tour. You get gigs, and you make some parnasa. So she wrote to her father, and Papa Jonas arranged for a speaking tour, and it was 1889. Um, so Eliezer is going back north to, to Russia. He gets to the border, and they won't let him in. Why? Because he doesn't have a passport anymore. He has a Turkish passport that says he was born in Lithuania. So they're wondering, why is this guy born in Lithuania with a Turkish passport? Maybe he's a revolutionary. So they had to get a, a letter from the father-in-law that he's just a Meshugana who gave up his... Uh, <laughs> who gave up for ideological reasons, but he's not a revolutionary. Okay. He goes to their home, and in 1889, Paula, the youngest child of the Jonas family who was just a baby, or three, four years old when Eliezer was previously there, is now 17. And she's secretly in love with her brother-in-law. Okay. All right, no, no, it ends well. Don't worry, don't worry. You should ask that question after I tell you that the even younger daughter, who wasn't even born yet, was, was interested in him. Okay, I don't know. All right. So she's about to enter the, the University of Moscow, and he goes on the speaking tour. And it works out well. He earns... Huh? He was a reasonable-looking guy. I don't know about a good-looking guy. So he starts working on a, on a, on a word book, on a, on, a dic, on a dictionary, and he coins the term Milon for the dictionary. There was no word for dictionary. That's his term, Milon, yeah. And um, he stops off at Paris... And he's recognized as a leader of the national movement when a decade earlier he had been some nobody. Um, and in his absence, his friend Michael Pinas he was running the, the, uh, the paper. And Michael uh, wrote in the, in the Tzvi that the Shemitah year should be observed. Shemitah year should be observed. So when Eliezer comes back to Eretz Yisrael, he's furious about this. How are we going to observe Shemitah? Crazy. Heter Mechira, or not at all. Just, just work, work, work. And so his relationship with his friend broke down, and he now even had fewer friends than he did before. And the Ashkenazi rabbis put uh, Eliezer into cherem over the issue of the Shemitah. And he was socially ostracized. So, life is not, not good. At this point, he and Devorah stopped being religious. Now what happened? He was very angry over the fact that all throughout his trip in Russia, 
he kept kosher, he put tefillin every day, you know, he was kept Shabbos. The, the, the strictures of halacha impeded his efforts all throughout his time in Europe. And yet, he comes back only to find out that the Haredim hate him and, and they, they, they're going to put him in, 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 in all sorts of horrible straits and excommunication. So, his religiosity, the second go-around, was never out of, out of sincere religious conviction. It was out of social necessity and a desire for a national revival. But once he sees that they're going to hate his guts no matter what, he figures, forget about it, I'm done. He throws off the fez and becomes a Westerner again. All right. Before he left um, Europe, Paula, the younger uh, daughter of Jonas, had a tearful goodbye with him. Tearful goodbye. But he didn't understand what that tearful goodbye was all about. He didn't, he didn't quite grasp what, what her intentions were. So, he's back in Israel, and his mother moves in. Fega Perlman uh, moves to Eretz Israel and lives with the family and to, help, to help out with the children. Because at this point, at point he has five children. Five children. Uh, and she didn't speak any Hebrew. So the deal was that he'll speak privately with her in Yiddish, but otherwise she has to stay quiet in front of the children. Um, now, Baron Rothschild of, of Paris sent uh, goons from Rishon LeZion to defend Eliezer ben Yehuda from the attacks of, by the Haredim, to physically defend him. And this will be an ongoing thing where Baron Rothschild will, ha- will send aid and comfort and material support to Eliezer ben Yehuda over the coming decade. That doesn't mean that he actually liked Ben Yehuda. It just means he was a philanthropist, as we'll see. And their one per- face-to-face encounter didn't go very well. Why did he want to support? He was a general philanthropist who who, who gave money liberally so in a lot of different. Actually, beating him up. Uh, they threatened it. Yeah. Okay. Now Devora was fading. Devora had tuberculosis, just like her husband at this point, and she got it from him. So, so, so Mother Jonas moves to, comes down to Israel from Russia to help out with the family. And she actually speaks a little bit of Hebrew. Devora is dying. And she writes a letter to her sister Paula saying, after I'm gone, I want you to marry Eliezer. And then she tells her on her deathbed with her dying words to her mother, get Paula to marry Eliezer. That she'll be the, the, the princess who marries the prince. And she dies. And he had trouble burying her on Haraz 18 because of the cherem. Uh the, the, the grave diggers in the Hevra didn't want to handle the body. So he had to pull a stunt threatening to bury her in the backyard. A whole sort of song and a dance before she could be buried. All right, a few months later, three out of the five children died of the flu in a, in a pandemic in, in um, 1891. So Avichai, Tara, and Shlomit all died. The only ones left are Ben Sion and Yamima. So what happens next? Paula got the letter, and she knows that her sister wanted her to marry Eliezer. She wants to marry Eliezer very much, but she doesn't know how to handle it. The mother doesn't say anything when she gets back to Russia. So Paula writes a letter to Eliezer offering condolences on the death of Devorah and asking for um, advice on how to learn Hebrew and to, for him to select a good Hebrew name for her. So he gives her a few suggestions in a letter that he writes back, but also writes back, by the way, three of my kids died. And that's how the family found out. So, she writes back, I'm so sorry to hear that, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Shelchabi ahava chemda. Yours with love, chemda. And that's her new name, chemda. Paula becomes chemda. So, the mother finally opens up about it. 
she says, I want to marry Eliezer. So she sends message, I want to marry you. And he says, in a, in a, in a response by cable, by uh, telegraph, um, you, you can't marry me. It's not a good idea. I'm much older. I'm a sick man. It's a crazy thing for you to want to marry me. And she writes back, no, I'm coming. What's the age difference? 15 years. She was, he was born in 1858. She was born in 1873. So he's, she's now 19, and he's uh, 33. About a 14-year difference. So, he agrees, fine, they'll get married. He goes to, to, to get her in Russia. The Jonas parents decide, you know what, we're moving to Israel too. We're not, we're not losing another daughter and not going to be around to see what's going on, we're moving to Israel. Mr. Jonas, who was never a Zionist, doesn't know why he's doing this, but just decides, I'm moving to Israel. Uh, he, he writes in his own diary, I'm crazy, but I'm moving to Israel. They get married, um, they meet at Odessa, and the wedding is held in Constantinople. Chemda uh, instructs her stepchildren to call her not Ima, but Ama. She, I'm not your Ima, I'm your Ama. Moreover, the younger Jonas children, Fania and Onaya, brother and sister, who were born when jo- the Jonases were kind of late in life, now become like uh, also stepchildren to the new Ben Yehuda couple. So they have two children from Devora and two siblings of Chemda, younger siblings that are being raised. Then, what happens? Chemda decides she's going to be a socialite. She's going to have five o'clock teas, spruce up the home, make it look nice. So whereas Devorah was the, uh, the, the love of Eliezer's life, of his youth, Chemda will be the real partner in business for the next 30 years, in making Eliezer a public intellectual and in helping his publishing uh, activities. They have a child named Devorah. They named after the dead, uh, the, the dead sister, the, the dead first wife. Then they have a child named Ehud, uh, named after Ehud ben Gera, who's the, the great show fate of the book of Shof team. Eliezer, huh? Like me. <laughs> so, he, um, Eliezer rails against the lack of secondary education in Eretz Israel and complains that the pioneers who came in the first Aliyah and had children are now sending off their children to Chutz Laaretz for education for lack of any alternative here. And what's going to happen when they get an education? They're not coming back. They're going to stay in Western Europe or America. And that really often did happen. So, of course, what's going to happen when his own child gets of age? He's going to send them off to Europe for education. Um, Solomon Jonas, the father-in-law, writes an article in Hatzvi, in Hanukkah 1893. And the article was about the terrible fact of infighting among the Jews and the need for unity in the Hebrew revival. Interestingly, Mr. Jonas, who was not a religious man back in Moscow, when he got to Eretz Yisrael, became Shomer Mitzvot again, became religious. But this time, it was like for real. Eliezer is not. not. His father-in-law now is. So keep the math. The father-in-law now is, but but will remain so for the rest of his life and seems to have sincerely approached the idea of religion. Um... But the Charedim don't like Eliezer, and so they take a copy of Hatzvi to the Pasha, to, the, to the, author- the Turkish authorities, and give him a bogus translation that said that on the Hanukkah article was extolling the Maccabees, claiming that this guy wants insurrection like the Maccabees of, of yesteryear. Now, that's not what it said. It said he wanted a Hebrew revival, and he just used the term Maccabees, but he didn't say we're calling for a rebellion against you know, the, the, the Antiochus IV. So, Eliezer is thrown in jail. And his wife has to bail him out. But, is, but this Eliezer is the publisher. 
So it doesn't matter who wrote the article, the publisher is the one who's uh, guilty of sedition. So he goes to jail for a while, he's there for about three weeks, and Rothschild ends up sending a lawyer to arrange it. When the trial happens, he is found not guilty, but he loses his publishing license for a year. While he's not printing a newspaper, he has time to work on his dictionary, which would become the main focus of, acti- of his activity for the remainder of his life, publishing an academic di- a dictionary of the Hebrew language based upon all the old Hebrew words of biblical time, Talmudic time, and the era of the Galut. So he would search in libraries uh, you know, f- far and wide all over the world looking for words that had been forgotten but could help in the creation of a modern language. Okay. So... He um, he gets his, his his paper license back about a year later, and he's he's back to publishing. But he was warned: don't get involved in politics. Stay out of politics. The Turkish don't approve of Zionism. Stay completely out of politics. In 1897, there's the con- Zionist Congress at Basel. Eliezer Ben Yehuda wanted to go. I mean, he's one of the chief Jews and he chief Zionists of the world. So how could he not go? But if he goes, he could get arrested. So he decides, maybe I'll go as a reporter. I'm a newspaper man. I won't go as a delegate. I'll go as as someone covering the event. But then he realizes, you know what? Even that's not a good idea. I don't want to go to jail. Because if he went to jail again, he would have died. His his tuberculosis, the the physical conditions in jail almost killed him. So he plays it safe and doesn't go. Um, He would be arrested by the Ottomans. He would be arrested by the Ottomans. Because they would see the um, association with the World Jewish Congress as as an attempt to develop a Jewish state, which is undermining their sovereignty over the territory. Now, over the next... Yeah. Is there a He's building it from scratch. There are almost zero Hebrew speakers in 1881. There are a few thousand by the 1890s. They're, they're not Most of them are not, although some in Yerushalayim are traditional Jews. Well, what language do the Sephardim speak? The either spoke Arabic... Some might have spoken Ladino, but for the most part, they probably spoke Arabic, and they may have known some, some Turkish just to deal with the Ottoman authorities, and, and they davened in Hebrew. So a lot of them could speak a rudimentary Hebrew, except that absent a reason to do so, they didn't. With Eliezer ben Yehuda around with the revival of Hebrew language, for them, adopting Hebrew was a lot easier than for the Ashkenazim, who really didn't know much. Okay, so during these years, sad things happened. Um... Ehud died in his crib in 1893. Devorah died in 1895. The second Devorah, the child Devorah. So now, of the seven children, five are dead. Um, Infant mortality, yeah. So in 1897, Chemda gives birth again, and they name the child Ehud, as a replacement for the first Ehud. And she takes precautions that there's a nurse watching the child at all times, even when he's sleeping in the crib, that he shouldn't die from sudden death syndrome. And the kid does survive and thrive. Um, the next big political issue is Eliezer ben Yehuda's relationship with Herzl. He wanted Herzl to support Hebrew language. Herzl was indifferent to all matters of language. The Zionist Congress was conducted in German. And, and then finally in 1911, after Herzl's dead, they have some sessions in Hebrew and eventually would go entirely Hebrew by the 1930s. But, in the beginning, the language was German. And most of the delegates didn't speak a word of Hebrew. Ben Yehuda wanted, at least in in, in principle, a statement of support for the revival of Hebrew language. 
and Herzl refused him consistently. He met Herzl for five minutes at Mikveh Israel in 1898. What was Herzl doing in Israel in 1898? He was there because the Kaiser was there, and he wanted to meet with the Kaiser. So while Herzl was chasing after heads of state, Elias of Yehudi was chasing after Herzl. And he gave him five minutes. And at the end of the five minutes, Herzl thought that Elias of Yehudi was a, was a lunatic. And, 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 and that this, he, this business with the Hebrew is, is, is nonsense. Right. Ben Sion uh, was sent to the Allianz School in Paris. And he was kicked out of school. Why? Because the father's Zionism was objectionable to the Allianz people. So what does he do now? Well, they claim that he was kicked out because he had tuberculosis, which was a lie. Dr. Max Nordau, who was one of Herzl's greatest collaborators in the early Zionist movement, checked him out from head to toe and said, you're perfectly healthy. But they don't want you here, so you're gone. Um, he would end up moving back to Israel. To be, a, uh, to be supportive of his father's publishing efforts. Now, Chemda had three more children. Uh, Ada, Zaza, and Dola, whose real name was Devora, so she's Devora three. Zaza? Z- well, she, her name was Zimra, but they called her Zaza. So now, her, Eliezer has 11 children, of whom six are still alive. Uh, he met Herzl again in Vienna in 1899 and asked him for a statement on Hebrew, and Herzl again refused. Despite this antagonistic relationship with Herzl, Eliezer always supported Herzl's leadership. And they disagreed on substance, but he felt, Eliezer, that Herzl represented the leader of Am Yisrael. And you, you can't go against the leader. Even if you disagree with him politically, he's our guy. We've got to support him, come what may. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Fega died in 1900, uh, Eliezer's mother, and she died a happy woman. Although many of her grandchildren had died in infancy, uh, still she, she had great hopes for her son. And now he, he was 42 years old, a prominent citizen of Jerusalem. She had gotten to live her last years as a pious woman in Eretz Yisrael. She died a happy woman. Okay. Um, the farmers on the land owned by Baron, Baron Rothschild were not happy with the Baron because his administrators lorded over them and made them feel, feel like, like dirt, like nothing. Um, they didn't own the land. They were simply hired hands on some rich man's estates. So and the, the total place is like Zichron Yaakov? Yes. Yes. It's the best ice cream in all of Israel. <laughs> I know. All right. So the, 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 the settlers of the first Aliyah, they didn't own the land. The, you know, the rich absentee philanthropist owns the land, but the rich absentee philanthropist also is with his head in the clouds, doesn't really know what's going on. He has administrators who run everything for him and are just interested in maintaining the bureaucracy because that's how they, that's how they earn a living. Okay? It's a problem with many Jewish organizations to this day. That the rich people give the money, the bureaucrats play around with the money, and there's a third person who's like the, the, the recipient of the, of the largesse. Isn't he the He's the, the Nadiv Hayadua, correct. <laughs> so, Eliezer writes an article in his paper in Hatzvi saying that the, the farmers shouldn't be so disrespectful to the baron. After all, even if he's not the, you know, doing the best he could do, still he's the Nadiv. He's the, he's the, big, he's the big giver. And 
the farmers attacked Ben Yehuda and sent, not physically, but uh, in, in public discourse, and sent back copies of the newspaper marked as unwanted because they thought that Ben Yehuda was a sellout, that he was getting money from Rothschild and was t- writing favorable articles about Rothschild when Rothschild's goons are, are bossing them around. Okay, so Ben Yehuda, who doesn't have that many friends to begin with because the Hasidim and the Misnagdim don't like him among the Frum, now doesn't, doesn't have uh, f- support among the farmers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was very successful in that regard. Okay. Now, Ben Zion took over the paper while Eliezer and Chemda went to Paris. Why they go to Paris? It was like a, the, the honeymoon they never had, even though they were married 10 years at that point. And Eliezer got access to the rare book rooms um, and was traipsing around Western Europe looking for, for Milim, for his Milon. Okay. Um, in, in Paris, ba- Baron Rothschild refused to meet with him. So he went to London and he tries to secure money. Chemda is the, real, the, 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 money, the money person. She raises money for the dictionary. They try to get subscriptions to Hatzvi, but no one wants Hatzvi. Now, in theory, money is fungible. So if you give a donation for the dictionary, but you don't buy a newspaper subscription, at the end of the day, it's money in Eliezer's pocket. And he can save on not having to spend postage to send you the, the newspaper uh, you know, across the pond. But he was troubled by the idea that Western Jewish philanthropists will give money to an intellectual project like the Milon, but they don't really want to read a Hebrew newspaper. They have no interest in it whatsoever. That bothered him. He wanted them to read a Hebrew newspaper. They said, why do we need another Jewish newspaper? We have so many English-language Jewish newspapers. They missed his point. His point was he wanted to spread Ivrit. Okay. On his way back in, uh, home, he stopped off in Paris again, and finally the Baron agrees to meet with him. The Baron actually doesn't even know who Eliezer ben Yehuda is. So Eliezer has to explain to him that over the last 20 years he had helped him out on like multiple occasions. It's like when Mr. Burns doesn't know who Homer Simpson is. It's, a, it's like a common trope on the, on the show. Even though they've had many interactions, he doesn't know who the guy is. So they never met face to face, but he should have known who Eliezer was. In the end, um, Eliezer says to him, you know, can you be supportive of Zionism? And he says, I don't really give a damn about Zionism. I'm just a philanthropist because I have money and I feel the, a, a, a moral obligation to spread my wealth. But I'm not interested in your Zionist nonsense. So he was kind of uh, dis- disillusioned by that. Okay, on the way home, they stop at Constantinople and they get a newspaper license in Chemda's name and the title of the newspaper, The Review. Why in Chemda's name? Because the Turkish authorities are suspicious of Eliezer and, they figure, and the, the couple figures if he try to get a, a license in Eliezer's name, might get refused. But no one knows who Chemda ben Yehuda is, so they get the license. Fine. Now she's officially the publisher. Ben Sion and Yamima are sent off to Berlin to go to university. Again, the same old story. You send off your kids to Europe to get an education. And Ehud, young Ehud, who was a teenager, was sent off to Hanover for high school. This was all Chemda's doing. And she also arranged, while she was in Germany, for a German publisher to publish the Milon, which had been a very difficult thing to find the publisher for this massive project that wasn't likely to sell a lot of copies in Hebrew. Okay, so they, she found the publisher. She was very talented at that. Um, the, the Russian Zionists in Palestine were against Uganda. Eliezer ben Yehuda reluctantly supported Herzl in, w- in whatever he did politically. And so he was nominally in favor of Uganda as a temporary option. But Ben Sion opposed Uganda. And so father and son were at, o- at, at odds with each other. And that's when Ben Sion changed his name. So that people shouldn't know that it's so obvious that father and son disagree on a political issue. He took the name Itamar ben Avi. Okay. When Herzl died, 
And by the way, Herzl was younger than Eliezer ben Yehuda. Herzl was born in 1860. Eliezer was born in 1858. Herzl died at the age of 44, 1904. Eliezer mourned him bitterly. Even though Herzl had been so dismissive of him and treated him like nothing, still, Eliezer saw that, that you know, the, like the Mashiach of, 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 of the Jewish people is dead. Okay. In 1912, or for a few years leading up to that, there was the Milchemet HaSafot. What is the Milchemet HaSafot? What does that, what does that mean? The, the War of the Languages. So the War of the Languages involved schools in Eretz Yisrael, which were uh, of a higher education type. What language are they going to conduct instruction in? So Alliance was French. Ezra was German. And the Ezra people wanted German to be the language of higher education in Palestine. But the Hebrew types, like Eliezer ben Yehuda, wanted Hebrew. So this battle was fought in particular over the Technion in Haifa in 1912, and Hebrew was partially victorious, that some of the, of the subjects of instruction would be in Hebrew, others would be in German, but would eventually all be in Hebrew once the language had thoroughly developed. Uh, okay. Yeah. The second Aliyah, 1905, when they brought people who spoke Hebrew? Okay, so when the second Aliyah, 1905-1906, brought people who were mostly uh, Russian socialists, who were disgruntled that the socialist revolution failed in Russia, and so they moved elsewhere. Did they speak Hebrew? So some of them knew Hebrew already, others didn't, but even the ones who knew Hebrew were still likely to speak Yiddish in Eretz Yisrael for the coming decade or so, and only fully adopted Hebrew over time. They were not nearly as ideological, you know, they were not Fabrenta uh, Hebrew people as was Eliezer. So guys like Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Ben-Svi and the like, they, they spoke, uh, or Levi Eshkol, they spoke a lot of Yiddish early on. Eventually it would all be Hebrew, except when they wanted a, the kids not to understand or they wanted to curse. Then it was all Yiddish. Okay, so... Um, Eliezer switched from a, from a daily paper to a, le- a weekly paper named ha- uh, from a weekly paper to a daily paper and he named, he named it Haor in 1909. This was a risky gamble because uh, is there an, are there enough people in Eretz Yisrael who are Jews and speak Hebrew or who are interested in a daily newspaper? Well, the answer was basically yes. It, it worked out reasonably well for the next five years until the First World War. Um, and after uh, Itamar was arrested for predicting an Italian victory of war against Turkey, because Itamar was a little bit risky like that, he, they changed the name back to Hatzvi, to the deer, in order to sort of confuse the authorities. But Itamar had a habit of speaking his mind even when it would get them in trouble. Okay. When the, when the war, World War began, the family had to leave Israel. Why? Threat of arrest. Many, many... Yeah? What was that? When they started to induct the men Okay, so Eliezer was already old enough and he's, out of the, he, you know, he's an old man. Uh, Itamar himself, in theory, could have been uh, 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 you know, drafted, conscripted into the army. But the, the issue was that people who held a foreign passport and were not Turkish citizens were subject to expulsion. Most Jews came from Russia and held a foreign passport and from a foreign country that was at war with Turkey. So it was convenient for the Turkish, who were interested in disrupting Zionism, to get rid of a, a bulk of the Jewish population. So lest they be arrested and thrown into jail, or who knows what happened, they flee to America. And uh, doesn't matter. Okay, so, well, but they would come back, at least. They would come back. So they went to America from 1915 to 1919. While in New York, he uh, has a place for himself. He has a table at the New York Public Library. Uh, I've sat at that table. It still exists. Which one is it? 
it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't have a plaque, but I was told by the librarian that so, here here sat Eliezer ben Yehuda. No, it's in the Jewish reading room. And so he also went on the Zionist speaker's circuit, and that's how he made some, some money. Uh, when the Balfour Declaration was issued, he was very, very happy. And in fact, he began a new calendrical reckoning, like just we, as we have Mibriya uh, Sa'olam, um, it's 5777, or uh, from the Chubin Abayis, or from Yetzias Mitzrayim. So he had the, the, the Shanim from the Balfour Declaration. Alright? A brand new thing. Very, very happy about that. 1917, November 2nd, 1917, the 100th anniversary is coming up soon. Uh, for his 60th birthday party, there was a big bash at Carnegie Hall. He didn't want this. He didn't really want all the, the glamour and the fanfare. But Chemda insisted upon it, and so they went. And while he was there, they gave him a $10,000 check to build a house in Israel. Okay, so that's a lot of money. But he never had a home of his own. He was always renting and always getting kicked out of his home. So the, the, the American rich Zionists wanted to give him a home. $10,000 will build a house. Okay. The Ben Yehuda family goes back to, is- to Israel January of 1919, although Ben Sion, or Itamar as he's now known, doesn't go back to Israel just yet. He is the Jewish representative um, at the conference in Europe on small nations. Uh, in a connection with the Versailles Treaty and the, and the Paris Peace uh, uh, Conference, there's the conference on small nations, like the Baltic, the, the, the Baltic States and the Jews. Why is he the representative? Because of a, we don't have time for the whole story, but there was a, a preacher in those years named uh, uh, Billy Su- Billy Sunday, and so Billy Sunday interacted with 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 the Ben Sion uh, Ben Yehuda, He's American. And, American, yeah, and he was an evangelist and he was a pro Zionist, and so Ben Sion came to speak at one of these big rallies in front of twenty thousand people at a stadium, and he did a great job, and he was called up to the podium, remember his name is Ben Sion, and Billy, uh, uh, Billy Sunday didn't know that Ben, uh, Sion was his first name, he thought it was Ben was his first name, so he called him up, because he was Jewish, Benny Saturday. <laughs> so Billy Sunday called up Benny Saturday. <laughs> um, yeah, he spoke English fluently, beautifully, he was a great linguist, the son. That story? It's, that's a true story, no, no, that really happened. Um, and, alright, so they go home. On the way home, they meet the governor of Jer- the new British governor of Jerusalem, and he welcomes them to Eretz Yisrael. They have been away five years; they're back, welcomed by a, 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 a friendly British administration. Their son Ehud, Ehud the second, because the first one had died in infancy, Ehud the second, the second had gone to Hanover for high school. He was there when World War One broke out, and he was of age to be conscripted, and they, they didn't hear from him for four years. They didn't know what happened to him. They thought maybe he died. And they, they thought, you know, another child, uh, Nebuch dies. All of a sudden, they see Ehud on the train with the governor of Jerusalem. What, what happened? So Ehud tells them that he, he was, they threatened to, cons- to, to uh, put him in the, the German army because he was a Turkish citizen and Turkey was on the side of Germany. So he ran away on a skiing trip to Switzerland. And from Switzerland, he went to Italy. From Italy, he went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he, he volunteered for the British Army. And in the British Army, he was assigned to Lawrence of Arabia. And with Lawrence of Arabia, he served side by side with Abdullah, who would go on to become King of Jordan. <laughs> so here, Eliezer ben Yehuda's son was buddies with King Abdullah. <laughs> All these connections are bizarre. But bear in mind that before 1948, when you have the establishment of the state and you know, sort of a, a war between... Zionist Jewry and the rest of the world, these sorts of connections are all plausible and really did happen. Okay, so they go back to, to Eretz Israel, 
and uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda is concerned that the British mandate is never going to take place, that uh, the Balfour Declaration will be for naught. He's reassured by the San Remo Conference of 1920 and the League of Nations adopting of the, of the mandate in 1922, but he realizes that British promises are not worth all that much, and he also recognizes that Jews need self-defense. He's a big su- supporter of Jabotinsky. Now, Eliezer, bear in mind, does, is not getting along with the Orthodox, had problems with the farmers, and now is a Jabotinskyite, which means that all the labor Zionists from the Ben-Gurion crowd don't like him either. So he always is antagonizing people, but yet he was still Eliezer ben Yehuda, the great man who everybody respected. Um, he builds his house in Talpiot, on a hill, on a, on a vacant lot overlooking the city. He never gets to live in that house. He dies before it's, it's completed. Uh, he's 64 years old when he dies. In 1922... He um, is approached by Chaim Weizmann to, uh, to write an, uh, an epistle to diaspora Jewry encouraging Aliyah, mass Aliyah. Because in the, in the rare moment when oh, Aliyah was completely open, 1919-2021, before the British started issuing white papers, not enough Jews moved. There just wasn't that much interest. So Weizmann figured that Ben Yehuda, the great writer and, and, and uh, journalist of, of, of Hebrew, can write something to Chutz Laaretz and it'll, it'll, it'll convince the people they need to move to Israel. And what's in it for Ben Yehuda? He gets made the secretary of the board of directors of the, of the, the new Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's very happy, proud about that. So, Hanukkah, 1922. He's working on his dictionary. He's published about five volumes. There's, a few t- there's two more ready to go to the printer. He's working on the word nefesh. And what happens? The nefesh goes. That, I don't know, that may be apocryphal. Um, his funeral was attended by 30,000 people. His... Uh, his grave was later vandalized in 1948 by the Arabs, by the Arab Legion, because it was Har's 18, which was not in Jewish hands, and later by the Haredim, uh, including in the 1970s when they, they, they built a fence around it, and the Haredim destroyed the fence and destroyed the plaque. His house became, was known as Matan Am, the gift of the people. Chemda lived there for the next 30 years and published the rest of the dictionary and certain other of his writings, together with Ehud. Uh, ben, uh, ben Sion, or Itamar, became a renowned poet and died in 1943. Um, Eliezer ben Yehuda wrote this book. Eliezer ben Yehuda is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yehuda, the grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda, the son of Ehud. And I think is still alive today. If I'm not, uh, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it's the, the legendary version of the life of the family. Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, it originally was in Hebrew, but then it was translated to English. Now, there are, there are six things that Eliezer ben Yehuda did for the sake of Hebrew and for the sake of Am Yisrael. One, Dibur Ivri Betocha Mishpacha, speak Hebrew in the family, exclusively, meaning raise a child. That Ben Sion ben Yehuda was the, the experiment. He was the first Hebrew child. Devorah was the first Hebrew mother. This was an experiment that could have gone wrong, it could have failed, but they were persistent and it worked. So, Diburivri betocha mishpacha. Number two, agudot the Diburivri, organizations advancing the uh, spoken Hebrew language. So, he formed Techiat Israel, Israel Reborn, in 1882, then Safa the clear language, in 1889, and then Vad Lashon Haivrit, the, the Committee for the Hebrew Language, in 1890, which eventually became Hakademia Lashon Haivrit, which is the official arbiter of all things in Hebrew language to this day. All right. The third thing, Ivrit Bivrit, pedagogy, teach Hebrew subjects in the Hebrew language. Don't, treat, don't teach Chumash or, or, or Talmud in, in Yiddish or English, but teach it in Hebrew. Fourth, Itonot, Hebrew newspapers. Up until that time, 
the Hebrew publications like Hashachar, Achavatzelot, Hamagid, they were literary journals that came out once a month or maybe once a week. He was the one who really invented a daily Hebrew newspaper that was an actual newspaper that told you news, stories you otherwise didn't know. <coughs> Fifth thing is the Milon, the dictionary, which was massive. It ultimately was 16 volumes, most of which was, which was published after his death. And lastly, Hachayat Otsar Milim Chidush Milim, resurrecting old words that had been lost and that were found in the various manuscripts of the past and inventing new words that, that, could, that never existed because there was no need for that word in antiquity, but there is a need for it now. Okay, so those were his contributions, and he's a hero of Am Yisrael, and that uh, as long as we still speak Hebrew, it's uh, his doing. One last point, I totally forgot. He was uh, w- uh, basically a weirdo, and he, and, and, and he, and he, he, he didn't have any, any method to his madness. So he had scraps of paper, thousands and thousands of scraps of paper that could easily have been lost. So... He, uh, Yehuda Shertok, the father of Moshe Shertok, Moshe Shertok was also known as Charette. Moshe Sharet, second uh, prime minister of Israel. So his father was a friend of Ben Yehuda and told him, listen, pal, you're going to lose everything because all these papers, they're going to burn them in a fire one day unless you s- safeguard them. So he gave him three metal cabinets. Those metal cabinets uh, would be fireproof, you would hope. And in the ult- ultimately, nothing was ever destroyed. When they went to America for five years during the war, the cabinets were left behind. But Chemda was smart. She realized, someone's going to loot the apartment while we're gone, and that, which is exactly what happened. Squatters came to live there. So they put the, um, the, the uh, metal cases in the American consulate's basement, and they were preserved that way. The other thing was, even if you preserve all the scraps, how are you going to make heads or tails about it to make a milon? So Solomon Schechter, who met him uh, 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 on one of his trips to Egypt, um, told him, you have to have a card catalog. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hei, Vav, Zion, and so on and so forth. It can't just be all over the place. So other people along the way gave him ideas that absent those ideas, it could be that all his work would have been lost. But Baruch Hashem was all published. And so uh, he has this, uh, this legacy. All right, we'll stop here.